The world is a confusing place, filled with all manner of shimmering distractions that take our conscious mind and our immortal souls and subvert them into the most basal of human emotions. Can any one of us who considers ourselves a spiritual being truly look around the carnival at the barkers, performers, and the caged animals and believe, even momentarily, that any of this is as it should be? My name is Alan Bishop, the alchemist of the Black Forest of Indiana, distiller, historian, occasional tinker, reenactor, and your host of If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. Have you ever noticed the world isn't quite what it presents itself to be? That something is just a little off kilter, just a little out of focus. Perhaps that movement you caught out of the corner of your eye was more than a shadow, that weight on your shoulder more than fatigue. I have lived my whole life like this, aware, awake, and waiting for the next experience, positive or negative, always apprehensive, always analyzing. I believe that spiritual warfare is real. I believe from societal observation that others are becoming acutely aware. I believe that many are being influenced by forces unknown in a negative and spiritually deprived way. I see soft disclosure in every corner of pop culture. Join us as we pull back the curtain, as the veil thins and reach with us into the ether to reclaim the truth. But if you have ghosts, you have everything. Christmas, a time of joy and family, of crackling fires, Bright lights and shiny ornaments. Presents and a jolly old elf. Hot cocoa and cookies. The date of birth of Jesus Christ, the Savior. A time of heartwarming movies and sticky sweet baked goods. And in recent decades, ridiculous and flaccid consumerism. This is the Christmas we know. But there is yet so much more. A deep, sometimes dark, and certainly to us mysterious history, awaits our discovery and may in fact further inform our interpretation of yearly culture comforts and bring to light a deeper understanding and revenance for the light we take for granted in the darkest month of the year. Things are rarely what they seem and often exactly as they feel. Intuitively, make no mistake about it, Christmas magic is real, but it may come from some unlikely sources. Tonight, join us on If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything, as we pull back the veil and illuminate the heathen origin of Christmas. So where to begin? It is of no doubt that amongst our earliest Northern Hemisphere ancestors that the winter solstice was a welcome time. The day when the darkness overwhelmed light around December 21st was seen as the day that the light would begin to return to the world, slowly but surely, in seconds, minutes, and hours, as light would be returned to our lives with a promise of spring in the coming months. 
thus signaling winter would for sure end, that the dying time was not eternal. The Norse, for example, celebrated Yule from December 21st through until January, with fathers and sons gathering a large log, which would be set alight, the feasting and celebration continuing until the log burned out, sometimes as many as 12 days later. Each ember from the fire was viewed as a pig or a calf, potentially, to be born the next season. Odin, too, was honored at this time, as he was believed to make nocturnal flights through the sky on his eight-legged horse, observing his people, deciding who would prosper and who would perish. The Romans celebrated Saturnalia from the 17th until the 23rd, celebrating the god Saturn, celebrating with sacrifice and a public banquet, followed by gift-giving and the overturning of social norms. Gambling, for example, was permitted, as was the slave owners switching places with their slaves to provide table service. We'll explore all this and more tonight on If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. Hey guys, if you've been following my career at all, or following the If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything podcast, you've probably also heard about my other shows, Distiller's Talk, as well as the One Piece of the Time Distilling Institute. One thing you may not be aware of, however, is that we actually have a separate website called TheAlchemistCabinet.com. And the really cool thing about TheAlchemistCabinet.com is we have our very own store there. It's called The Warehouse One. And you can go there right now and pick up all your Christmas gifts. Or if it's after the New Year's or even before, if you're at all into if you have ghosts or you're into the art of distillation, you can go to the Warehouse One right now and buy various different if you have ghosts, you have everything and uh, one piece at a time distilling institute apparel and or merchandise. Things such as shirts and hats and stickers and my book, The Alchemist Cabinet Philosophy, Volume 1, or the two DVDs we're currently offering, A Short History of Distilling in Indiana's Black Forest as delivered in a speech to uh, the Salem Depot, and or the Alan Bishop Experience documentary, directed and produced by Bo Cumberland and Jolie Kasperzak. There's all kinds of cool stuff over there. I even occasionally have some extra distillation slash homebrewing related materials such as staves or yeast or unique grains that I offer over there. There's going to be all kinds of new stuff coming up. Kim and I are actually working on an Oracle deck specifically for if you have ghosts, you have everything and our spiritual work with this podcast and personally that'll be up before too long. So please go over to thealchemistcabinet.com and place an order. All that money obviously goes back into this show as well as into the One Piece of the Time Distilling Institute, and it helps our family out. This is one of the ways that we pay for our bills and also pay for our hobbies, such as all the software we use for this podcast, etc. We really appreciate your support. We love you guys, and we'll catch you soon. So, shall we start with Saturnalia? A Roman festival dedicated to a mysterious agricultural-centered god named Saturn 
held between the 17th and 23rd of December every year and coinciding with the winter solstice. The festival dates back to at least the 5th century CE, but evidence of the celebration points to a much earlier date in history. It is likely that the festival emerged from archaic agricultural rituals but came to include a great round of gift-giving, merrymaking, and societal role reversals such that it became the most popular celebration of the Roman calendar. The focus, of course, of Saturnalia was the god who gave his name to the festival. Saturn was considered a god of time and potentially related to the Greek god Kronos, but also of generation, dissolution, abundance, wealth, agriculture, renewal, and liberation. His mythologic reign was often depicted as a golden age of abundance and peace based on agricultural successes and plenty alongside the god Janus, the god of gates, transitions, time, duality, doorways, and endings. The two reigned over the side of the city before its foundation and the capital was called Mons Saturnus. Alongside Saturn were his two mistresses, representing the differing aspects of the god. Ops, meaning wealth, abundance, and resources, and his patron goddess, Lua, the goddess of destruction, dissolution, and loosening, the sacred profane, the balance of man and woman. The name Saturn itself is a reference to the agricultural cycle of life, death, and life again, stemming likely from Sterculius or Sturces, a reference to the god's agricultural functions as the word derives from stersis, dung or manure, referring to manure as the fertilizer for raising life from the dead in the spring. Yet another reference to the green man concept that we'll touch on later in the show. Balbus gives us a separate etymology in Ciceros de Natura Deorum, whereupon the agricultural aspect of Saturn would be secondary to his relationship and control over time and the seasons. Hence, as time consumes all the things, the name Saturn may come from the Latin word status, being an anthropomorphic representation of time, satiated by all generations, including farming and the seasons, and therefore representative of the cyclical passage of time, tying his function to the new year, father time, and yet again, the green man concept. In contrast to other Roman gods, Saturn was sacrificed to with those performing the sacrifice with their heads uncovered. Instead, Saturn himself wore a veil to cover his head and often is represented holding a sickle and is similar to the German god Odin, even the veil being on the god Saturn as opposed to the sacrificee speaks of the reversal of roles between god and man. Outside of Rome, other gods share similar roles, such as the Etruscan god Saturs, or the Carthaginian god Bial, as well as Yahweh, whose own Sabbath was referred to as Saturni Day, or Saturn's Day. Contemporary 5th century CE works display a type of nostalgia for a time when Roman pagan rituals were more prominent before Christianity with particular emphasis on the festival of Saturnalia. Originally, the festival started off as a one-day holiday but quickly expanded to a week-long festivity and was so popular 
that even after Augustus attempted to reduce it to three days, Caligula had to increase it to five. The public, however, was so enraptured that they celebrated for the full seven days demanded by the god regardless of official Roman decrees. The Saturnalia was presided over by a mock king of each household, chosen from the lower levels of the household and specifically for the celebration and known as the Saturnalicus Principus, or the leader. Often this king is referred to as the Lord of Misrule and was selected from the lowliest members of a given household. The king was given the right to conduct light-hearted mischief throughout the festival, including insulting the guests, dressing in crazy clothing, and chasing women and girls. The idea was that he was ruling over chaos rather than the accepted Roman order. The custom of hiding coins or other small objects and cakes at this time of the year even dates back to Saturnalia as a method of choosing the mock king. During the festival, social precepts were often reversed and slaves had the freedoms ordinarily reserved to the citizens, including those of gambling, drinking in public, and the setting aside of normal social decorum, such as having their masters provide table service to them and even light verbal ribbing of their masters. Masters would even wear the freed slave felt hat during these role reversals, and it's thought that socially the festival may have been responsible for relieving some of the social pressures built up over the previous year by the strict social conventions of Rome. Feasts were carried out, including intense partying, complete with drinking and plenty of games. Catalyst described it as the best of times. The focal point of the festival was the temple dedicated to Saturn and the Forum of Rome. The first shrine to the god was the Era Saturni, which was replaced by a temple circa 497 BCE and built by Titus. This structure was later replaced in the 4th century by the Temple of Saturn, composed of eight majestic columns, still standing at the site today. Inside the temple was a statue of Saturn, which became the center of attention during the Saturnalia, when its feet were symbolically freed from the wooden bonds that tied him up for the rest of the year. Yet another example of the festival and God's dualistic nature. During the festival, work and business came to a complete halt, and the schools and courts of law closed. People would decorate their homes with wreaths and other greenery, representative of the spring yet to come, and they would even trade their traditional togas for colorful clothes known as synthesis. Gifts were given amongst friends, notably wax taper candles called serai, and were used to signify the light returning after the solstice. The last day of the celebrations was known as the Sigillaria. Terracotta figures known as Signalaria were given to loved ones, likely as a throwback to older traditions that may have involved actual human sacrifice. The Roman Empire's conquest into Britain and Europe from the 2nd century BC into the 4th century AD carried many of these older Saturnalia rites throughout the Old World, where they collided with older seasonal rites practiced by the Celts and other pagan groups, as well as more modern Christian rites.
Hey, what's up, guys? It's great to be back with If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything, Season 2. You might have noticed from the show that we absolutely love to collaborate with our friends. Well, it turns out that some of our good friends in the distilled spirits industry just happen to have delved into my second favorite beverage class, coffee. But not just any coffee, barrel-aged coffee, aged exclusively in Kentucky bourbon rickhouses using unique barrels. So when I came across two unique 15-gallon chinkapin oak barrels to use for the One Piece of the Time Distilling Institute channel on YouTube, I knew that their next stop would be with John Waddell and Corey Welch of Stave and Bean Coffee Company. The first barrel was second filled with apple wood smoked malted corn whiskey for nine months before unique Brazilian beans were aged prior to their roasting. This is the one piece at a time Distilling Institute brand. Unique, buttery, and slightly smoky. It just turns out that it pairs great with an episode of Distillers Talk podcast. See what I did there? That's cross-marketing. The second barrel had to have a little something special for Kim and I and be part of If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. So when a close personal friend approached us about making him some homemade blackberry wine, we jumped all over it. We took that blackberry wine and we added it to that 15-gallon barrel. Then we fortified that wine with some white apple brandy to make a fortified blackberry wine, a blackberry port, if you will. Afterwards, that barrel went down to John and Corey of Stave and Bean Coffee Company, where they added some amazing Ethiopian guji beans, giving us a fruit-aroma-filled spiritual experience with our coffee, for if you have ghosts, you have everything. Both of these coffees are exclusive to thealchemistcabinet.com and staveandbean.com, and they'll never be replicated again. Get yours today and enjoy it while you listen to the show. Love y'all. Later. What then of Yule and Odin? Yule was generally celebrated for 12 days, from December 21st until January the 1st, and was directly connected to the god Odin and his wild hunts, a hunt which saw the god take to a sleigh pulled by his eight-legged magical flying horse named Sleipnir. Even to this day, the holiday can still be seen in Christmas carols that mention Yule, Yuletide, Yule logs, and more. Yule is still considered a holy period, and much like the previously mentioned Saturnalia, Yule celebrates the promise of light returning and triumphing over darkness, and the subsequent rebirth of the sun. Yule was a time in which family and friends would strengthen their bonds to one another through hospitality, drinking, feasting, gift-giving, and merrymakings in the depths of the dark and dangerous winter months. While we don't discount the work of St. Nicholas himself towards the development of the character of Santa Claus, our Father Christmas, there can be no doubt whatsoever that Odin certainly shares some characteristics with the jolly old elf, and Yule celebration shares many similarities with our own modern Christmas. The Odin and Santa connection becomes much more apparent when viewed through a pre-Coca-Cola commercialized lens. One of Odin's many forms, for example, 
was of an elderly, white-bearded traveler, bedecked in a cloak and a broad-brimmed hood or hat, an attire he used as a disguise while he traveled to nine realms seeking knowledge, an image that European families would have been very familiar with and one related closely to the image of Santa Claus prior to the 1920s, all the way down to traveling upon a horse. Before we delve too deep into the relationship between Father Christmas and the Yule Father himself, let's first dive into Odin. Odin is a widely revered god in Germanic paganism and Norse mythology, associated particularly with wisdom, healing, death, royalty, the gallows, knowledge, war, battle, victory, sorcery, poetry, and the runic alphabet. He is the husband of the goddess Frigg and was known in Old English as Woden, the lord of frenzy or leader of the possessed. Historically, he is prominent as a god from the Roman occupation of Germania around 2 BCE through the migration period of the 4th to 6th centuries and during the Viking Age in the 8th to 11th century CE. Rural folklore to this day still acknowledges Odin and many place names are related to him via the regions historically inhabited by the ancient Germanic peoples. Odin is the son of Besla and Bor and fathered many sons himself, famously of course Thor. He's portrayed as having one eye, a long beard and wielding his spear when not appearing in disguise. He works with animal familiars, particularly two wolves and two ravens who spy for him across Midgard. He is a seeker of great knowledge and gambles with his wife Frigg over his many adventures. He gives life to the first two humans, Ask and Embla, and gives mankind the knowledge of the runes. The modern weekday, Wednesday, is derived from the Old English Wodensdag, meaning Day of Woden. Coming back to the Christmas connection, it would be worthwhile, of course, to speak of the Yule celebration and the wild hunt that inspired it. The wild hunt, also known as Oskokria, or the terrifying ride, or Odin's hunt, was a nocturnal horde of spectral entities which swept through the midwinter forest in the coldest and the darkest part of the year. Any of those who found themselves out of doors in the darkness of night during this time might even see this ghostly procession or become embroiled in it by being carried away and dropped far from home, or potentially worse. Some even chose to join the hunt voluntarily, as a soul, while potentially partaking in hallucinogens, and sometimes the hunt even entered the local towns and created havoc. Odin, sometimes seen as a shamanic god of death, was most often the leader of these hunts. The hunters themselves were ghostly characters, and dogs and horses, animals closely associated with death, were invariably a part of the hunts. The ghostly hunters themselves are closely associated with, and potentially seen, as one and the same with ancestral spirits that were tied to particular places in the land. This hunt and the time of Yule very clearly being part of ancestral worship, pounding hooves, Howling dogs, raging winds, the spirits of the dead, a spectral god, and a winter storm, wrapped in a tumultuous time of the year. Odin, as god of the wind, 
leading the procession on Sleepnir, picking up and carrying off the souls of the dead in his wake to enter the new year. In addition to the burning of the Yule Log, straw effigies of goats were built and burned in honor of Thor and his sleigh pulled by goats. The bringing in of an evergreen tree into the home and the decoration with ceremonial meaning as representative of the spring to come and subsequent green man concept was also an important part of the celebration. And the mistletoe itself finds its original ceremonial meaning here, not with a kiss, but with the laying down of arms should two warriors meet underneath it. The time in general seen as a thinning of the veil and a time to put away old things in favor of all things new. Coming back then to the Odin connections to Santa Claus, we already see many of the comparisons above, from his dress to his magic horse and sleigh to the holiday built around celebrating the wild hunts. But let us not in fact forget the elves and dwarves too at his service in a workshop given to magical demigod-like powers and responsible for the building of both Odin's staff and Thor's Mjolnir. Hey guys, Alan Bishop here, the alchemist of Indiana's Black Forest. Sometimes, you just want breakfast for supper, am I right? Maybe you spent too much time in your local watering hole and they ain't got nothing on the menu and you don't feel like making fuck for supper. Sometimes, I bet you wish you could just turn the clock back a decade or two. Maybe visit your favorite rural mom and pop restaurant, the one of your childhood. Steak and eggs, wood paneled walls, proper sweet tea, your favorite line cooks, Dale Bishop, black and white pictures, the local news, maybe the Andy Griffith show. How about a glass of absinthe to go with it? Or who's your apple brandy? You can have all this and more at the Golden Eagle. At the Golden Eagle Tavern, we serve the best Southern Hoosier appropriate breakfast food and you can get a glass of house distilled rye, bourbon, or an American whiskey cocktail. The Golden Eagle, yeah. come for the food. Stay for the spirits. Now, don't you wish it was real? Me too. Your favorite podcast, if you have ghosts, you have everything, is looking for sponsors. And this spot could be yours. If you're interested, just reach out to us at thealchemistcabinet.com or bishopshomegrown at gmail.com. From a passage in the Natural History by Roman historian Pliny the Elder, written in the 1st century AD, speaking of mistletoe, he writes, We should not omit to mention the great admiration that the Gauls have for it as well. The Druids, that is what they call their magicians, hold nothing more sacred than the mistletoe and a tree on which it is growing, provided it is a hard-timbered oak. Mistletoe is rare, and when found, it is gathered with great ceremony, and particularly on the sixth day of the moon, hailing the moon in a native word that means healing all things. They prepare a ritual sacrifice and banquet beneath the tree and bring up two white bulls 
whose horns are bound for the first time on this occasion. A priest arrayed in white vestments climbs the tree and with a golden sickle cuts down the mistletoe, which is caught in a white cloak. Then finally they kill the victims, praying to a god to render his gift to those on whom he has bestowed it. They believe that mistletoe given and drank will impart fertility to any animal that is barren and that it is an antidote to all poisons. In the Celtic British Isles, we have the Holly King and the Oak King War and various ceremonies tied to the two diametrically opposed nature spirits. The Holly King being the personification of winter and the Oak King that of the summer. The kings engage in an endless war reflecting the seasonal cycles of the year with the two high holy times being midsummer when the Oak King is at his peak and midwinter when the Holly King is at his. Although both are at their full power in their peak seasons, they both begin to die and fade in the subsequent days, allowing the other to begin their ascents. It is interesting to note that the holly remains verdant during the winter, again a symbol of the spring to return and the presence of the green man ideal. The two bulls spoken of as being sacrificed in the account of Pliny the Elder are related to a method of survival in Northern Europe. When as fall approached, all but the most necessary breeding livestock would be slaughtered to save feed and resources for the rough winter ahead and prepare a cachet of meat for the cold months when protein was at a premium. These events were of course closely tied with the winter solstice and subsequent feasting and celebration as it may have been the only time of the year when fresh meat was readily available. Both the Holly King and the Oak King are portrayed in a similar way with the Holly King as a more woodsy version of Father Christmas. Dressed in red with a sprig of holly adorning his hair, a representation of hope in the face of adversity, and driving a sleigh pulled by eight stags. The Oak King is portrayed much like a fertility god, maybe even the Horn God or Bacchus, a green man if you will. The Holly and Oak King Festival carries on to this day on December the 21st in Toronto, Canada, where a festival marks the return to light, including costumed revelers, thematic lanterns, theatrical scenarios, shadow play, and roving giant puppets, some of which have botanical themes. The longest night concludes with a festival of fire and a community feast to welcome the return of the Oak King. The Green Man is a symbol used quite regularly in architecture and as an archetype of an ideal as ancient as belief itself. A motif with many variations, such as branches or vines, sprouting from the mouth, nostrils or other parts of the face, often bearing flowers or fruits, associated most often with fertility and vegetation deities and is a popular image attached to English public houses or taverns. The most common depictions are of a man's face peering out of heavy foliage, although some may make use of the leaves for hair, particularly a beard. Depictions of green man figures go back to the 2nd century in Lebanon and Iraq, and similar figures exist in Borneo, Nepal and India. 
Interestingly, the green man motif has historically been quite popular on churches, particularly those with associations to the Knights Templar, perhaps an occultic association between the figure of Jesus and Dionysus is being alluded to. Perhaps, just as interestingly, there are seven green men carved into the facade of the 13th century St. Nicholas Church in Cyprus. Yet another Santa Claus connection? Many god figures are depicted in similar fashion, such as the Egyptian god Osiris, who was regarded as a grain deity and was depicted commonly with a green face, representing vegetation, rebirth, and resurrection. Soil containers in the shape of Osiris were planted with seed and found in many New Kingdom tombs. The Celtic Lud Arnodens, Odin, Jesus, and Father Christmas, often shown wreathed in ivy, are all considered somewhat similar. Dionysus, with his connections to fertility, the vine, wine, and debauchery, feasting, and socially unacceptable festivals, would certainly fall into the same category. His alternative birth from the thigh of Zeus and subsequent crucifixion and resurrection represented by the new wine festivals certainly seem to be a familiar motif. Another explanation for the disembodied head is that of Mimir's head from Norse mythology. Mimir is the uncle of Oin and is a god of knowledge and wisdom. His well is located in Jotunheim, the land of ice giants. He is beheaded by the Vanna gods for controlling Honer, the Asa god chieftain, after the Asa-Vanna war. The severed head is then sent to Oin, who embalms the head with herbs and spices to stop it from rotting. He then reanimates the head and keeps it with him, so Mimir's wisdom and knowledge is not lost. After the Viking Age in the UK, some churches incorporated the Green Man motif in reference to knowledge and wisdom. Perhaps knowledge and wisdom about preserving crops for the coming hard months. Qadir or Al-Qadir in Arabic, Al-Qadir the Green One, also transcribed as Qadir, Qizir, Kaiser, Kizar, is a revered figure in Islam who the Quran describes as a righteous servant of God who possesses great wisdom or mystic knowledge. In the Quran, Al-Qadir was mentioned as a contemporary of Moses, who is said to be wiser and more knowledgeable than Moses. The 18th Surah presents a narrative where Qadir accompanies Moses and tests him about his oath to not ask any questions. In Sufi theology and tradition, Qadir is identified in esoteric Sufism with the green man. In his book about the work of Henry Corbin and others concerning the 12th century Muslim saint Ibn Arabi, Tom Cheatham, an authority on Islamic mysticism and Sufism, develops the idea of the green man Qadir as the principle mediating between the imaginary realm and the physical world. On a similar theme, author on spirituality and architecture William Anderson writes concerning Al-Qadir. There are legends of him in which, like Osiris, he is dismembered and reborn, and prophecies connecting him, like the green man with the end of time. His name means the green one or verdant one. He's the voice of inspiration to the aspirant and committed artist. He can come as a white light 
or the gleam on a blade of grass, but more often as an inner mood. The sign of his presence is the ability to work or experience with tireless enthusiasm beyond one's normal capabilities. In this, there may be a link across cultures because one reason for the enthusiasm of the medieval sculptors for the green man may be that he was the source of every inspiration. Hey, we all know how hard it can be to find good help nowadays, right? So imagine my surprise when an admirer of distillation and the product thereof showed up on the doorstep of Spirits of French Lick looking to intern to work for free for me. And I'm a bit of an asshole, to be honest with you. It surprised me as well. But the guy did such a great job that we got him hired on full time after just a couple of weeks. And he's now working as one of my new still hands at Spirits of French Lick. His name's Justin Whaley, and he's doing something really cool for those who enjoy distillation-related podcasts. He has started a podcast called Still Learning. It's kind of an audio journal where you can follow Justin's journey of learning and discovery about distillation in a professional setting. Check it out at Anchor.com and Spotify, Still Learning Podcast with Justin Whaley. Bafana, the Christmas witch or Christmas hag, is a widespread Italian Christmas character with ancient ties to a pagan goddess. In Christian legend, Bafana was approached by the Magi of the Bible, the three wise men, a few days prior to the birth of Jesus. The Magi asked for directions to where the Son of God was, as they had seen the star foretelling his birth in the sky. However, Bafana did not know the location. She provided them with shelter for the evening and was considered the best housekeeper in the village. The Magi invited her on their journey, but she claimed to be too busy with her housework. Later, she had a change of heart and went out to search for Jesus, but was unable to find them. As such, La Bafana is still searching for Jesus to this day and leaves all the good children toys and caramel or fruit and the bad children coal onions, or garlic. Bafana even seems to share some traits with Krampus, as if she's seen in action by a child, the child will receive a thump on the shoulder from her broomstick. In another legend, La Bafana was originally an ordinary woman who spent her days cleaning and sweeping, but one day when the Magi came to her home in search of Jesus, Bafana turned them away due to her being busy with work. Later, feeling guilty, she decides to find Jesus of her own accord by following a bright light in the sky. She brings with her a bag filled with baked goods and gifts for Jesus, as well as a broom to help the new mother Mary clean. Unfortunately, despite her best effort, Bafana never finds Jesus and is subsequently still searching to this very day. In popular folklore, Bafana visits all the children of Italy on the eve of the Feast of Epiphany in order to fill their socks with candy and presents if they are good, or coal if they are bad. She rides to the house upon a broom 
and is said to sweep the floor before she leaves. The sweeping is also symbolic of the sweeping away the problems of the previous year. Instead of milk and cookies, the families typically leave a small glass of wine and a small plate of food, the food often being typical of that particular region of Italy. She wears a black shawl, rides a broomstick, and is covered in soot from entering houses through the chimney. It is believed that Bafana was a derivative of Bastrina, gifts associated with the goddess Strina. In her book, Domestic Life in Palestine, Mary Rogers notes, but an essay on the fine arts by E.L. Tarbuck led me to believe that this custom is a relic of pagan worship and that the word Bastrina refers to the offerings which used to be made to the goddess Strinia. We could hardly expect that the pagans who embraced Christianity could altogether abandon their former creeds and customs. Macaulay says, Christianity conquered paganism, but paganism infected Christianity. The rites of the pantheon passed into her worship, and the subtleties of the academy into her creed. Many pagan customs were adopted by the new church. T. Hope, in his essay on architecture, says, The Saturnalia were continued in the carnival and the festival with offerings to the goddess Strinia, which was continued into that of the new year. A theory connects the tradition of exchanging gifts to an ancient Roman festivity in honor of Lanus and Strinia. In Italian, a Christmas gift used to be called a strena, celebrated at the beginning of the year when Romans used to give each other presents. In the book, Vestiges of Ancient Manners and Customs, discoverable in modern Italy and Sicily in 1823, John J. Blunt says, This Belfana appears to be heir at law of a certain heathen goddess called Strinia, who presided over the New Year's gifts, Strinae, from which indeed she derived her name. Her presents were of the same description as those of Befana, figs, dates, and honey. Moreover, her Solemnites were vigorously opposed by the early Christians on account of their noisy, riotous, and licentious character. Strinia was a goddess of the new year, purification and well-being. Her shrine and grove were at the top of the Via Sacra. On January 1st, twigs from Strania's grove were carried in a procession to the citadel starting as early as 153 BC, and her name gave birth to Strane, a type of New Year's gift the Romans exchanged as good omens. Hey guys, Alan Bishop back again with another segment of If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. So there was another concept that I wanted to include in this very special Christmas edition of the podcast, but I didn't think that I needed to write my own exposition to read to you because there's been plenty written about this already. So what I did is I found a great article that really explained the concept and I thought I would share it here with you with all proper credit given. So I found this at NorwegianAmerican.com. 
Uh, it is an article that was written in December of 2018 or published in December 2018, and it is titled, We Wish You a Trippy Christmas. Could ritual use of psychedelic mushrooms be the source of the Santa Claus legend? And it's written by Judith Gabriel Vinge. I think I pronounced that, that last name right. I hope I did. If I didn't, I apologize. It's V-I-N-J-E. Here we go. The way we think of Santa Claus with his bag of toys, the reindeer pulling the sleigh through the sky on a wild midnight ride, using a chimney to enter people's homes, may have originated among the indigenous peoples of the Arctic Circle, including the Sami of Norway and Finland, as well as many Siberian peoples. Such a familiar picture may have been born of the tripping mind of northern folk hallucinating after ingesting psychedelic mushrooms. The Sami, as well as many other Arctic peoples, have a tribal shaman who functions as a medicine man or a spiritual guide. On the night of the winter solstice, for instance, the shaman would gather several hallucinogenic mushrooms called Amanita muscaria, or fly ageric in English. A bite or two would launch him into a spiritual journey on which he could traverse spiritual dimensions. In addition to inducing hallucinations, the mushrooms stimulate the muscular system, leading to temporary superhuman strength. Legend has it that the Viking berserkers got their wild strength by consuming the mushrooms. The wilding effect is the same for animals. Any reindeer that took a bite of mushroom would become high and mighty, often jumping so high that they looked like they were flying. Flyageric is the red mushroom with white spots that's frequently depicted in northern lands around Christmas. It got its strange name because it was once mixed with milk and used to kill flies. Sweden especially makes use of the happy-looking red domes with white spots as a seasonal symbol. Most commonly, they grow under pine trees and their spores travel about on pine seeds. They are truly toxic, but they become less potent when they are dried out. The shaman would often hang the harvested mushrooms on lower branches of the tree they were growing under so they could dry out. Could this be the origin of Christmas tree decorations? Then again, the shaman might also put them in a stocking and hang it over the fire to allow them to dry. Could that have anything to do with the custom of hanging stockings by the fire? Most significantly, the mushrooms were hallucinogenic. They caused psychedelic flights of fancy. At the same time, they contained fatal toxins. One way to remove the poisons was to let the reindeer eat them. Their digestive system would filter out most of the bad stuff. Thus, when humans consumed the deer urine, they would experience a safe intoxication or high. According to mushroom expert Lawrence Millman, the shaman would make use of the Amanita muscaria's psychoactive effects to perform healing rituals. Using the mushroom as a drug to induce a spiritual experience would enable the shaman to act as an intermediary between the spirit and the human world, bringing gifts of healing and problem-solving. To top the scenario, the shaman might distribute the mushrooms to the people celebrating the winter solstice. Along that line, there is one theory that explains Santa's descent down the chimney to leave his gifts. Often, with snow blocking the doorway, the only way the shaman could reach the people inside, the Siberian yurt, 
was the climb down the chimney, according to some interpretations of the custom's origins. And so we must ask ourselves, could the red-suited, big-bellied wise one who goes about in a carriage drawn by flying reindeer, defying limitations of both space and time, climbing down a chimney to leave his gifts, originate in the shamanic culture of the far north? Could it all be the result of someone's overindulgence in red-headed fungi? If so, we wish you happy mushrooming. Don't fly off the planet. Alright, so we're back with If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything, and for the first time this season, we actually have... The Rare and Elusive Kimberly Marie Bishop. Right? Are you presumably going to be on more episodes? I hope so, yeah. <laughs> yeah? She came... I She knew that we were going to record this all week... And did no research, like zero research. Well, the problem is, is I've done research, but the research that I've done has been over a month ago when I was posting to the Facebook page and stuff. So, uh-huh. <laughs> I hear you. And then, then you said that you hadn't heard the segments that I'd already done, which we determined was false. <laughs> I didn't hear the last one that you recorded yesterday. You heard the other ones, though. I did. Yes. Yes. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, what are we going to talk about here? Well, um, I guess, do you want to start with the last segment that you let me listen to, which was the the psychedelic mushrooms in the Arctic Circle? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Okay, so I guess one of the things that we can look at is, obviously, um, shamans use psychedelics to go on trips and talk to the gods and all of that. Open doorways. Open doorways. So in the Arctic Circle around this time of year is when magnetic fields are doing lots of interesting things and by magnetic fields i mean like the the coronal mass ejections basically <laughs> that was the sound of a cell phone setting on the dresser where the microphone is because somebody's batting a thousand today <laughs> anyhow so, back to the professional podcast we're working on yeah um so coronal mass ejections or um, solar flares. And solar flares cause reactions within the Earth's atmosphere, the, the northern lights, what we call the northern lights. So one could argue that the magnetic fields and the fact that all the ley lines, which are magnetic fields within the Earth, come to points at the Arctic Circle, um, as well as the coronal mass ejections and the northern lights are also contributing to the magic of the mushrooms and either making the trips more vivid or even making the magic stronger. Right. Or it could be, I mean, that's kind of a natural explanation. And obviously, if you see that on psychedelics, you're going to have a reaction to it. And potentially, also, that is part of the whole um, wild hunt, obviously, uh, you know, some, seeing something in the sky. But it could also be that perhaps there are things that we don't know about 
that particular phenomenon. Right. It could be just a giant portal. Yeah, or things that we can't see and or yet measure scientifically that maybe one day we'll be able to. Right. But I certainly think that that likely contributed to some of those stories without a doubt and some of the reactions without a doubt. Um, Especially if you were to, let's say, uh, tie that in with going back to the wild hunt, tie that in with a, a massive snowstorm. Right. right, coming in, and it's dark outside, and you well, know. Well, we it's... all know what snowstorms look like when we're even just driving in our vehicles. When it's like a really heavy snow, it's like you're friggin' driving at warp speed, and you're only only tw- going twenty miles an hour. Right. I also do, however, think that there's been there there's enough uh, mythology around Saturnalia and Yule, etc. That without a doubt, there was something beyond this world also happening throughout the years, too. So, right. um, you brought up when you were listening back through the segments uh, that I did not touch on the origin of the mistletoe. Um, and I believe you're talking about the Norse origin of the mistletoe yeah, the in Norse particular. Yeah, the Norse origin of the mistletoe in which um, Freya had visions of one of her sons being murdered. And... In doing so, she made deals with all of the animals and gods and beings of the earth um, to not do this. However, Loki being Loki and the chaos monster that he is, um, he paid attention and realized that she did not make that deal with the mistletoe. Um, And so he fashioned an arrow out of mistletoe and shot said son and killed him so at that point Freya I guess blessed the mistletoe so that it could no longer kill and it became a symbol of love that we hang over our doorways and we kiss our loved ones underneath so that it can no longer kill and and now that I'm thinking about it and talking back through it that can also go back to the legend of the dogwood right Yes, very similar. But also make no mistake about it, all of these all these different legends uh, with evergreens and various red colorations and white colorations. So I'm big on human symbology and psychology throughout history and things that haven't changed and the sacred. So if you break down the mistletoe or you break down the evergreen tree or you break down the holly and you break down the fact that you're in the wintertime in the northern hemisphere with snow... You have three very distinct concepts. So you have the green that is evergreen, a a symbology that spring will return one day. Mm -hmm. You have red, which is a symbol for blood and sacrifice in what is considered the dying time of the year. And white, which is the snow, which is purity. And that you have to have the winter to come in and regain purity through a sacrifice of the blood in order to get back to things being verdant and green. And I think that's very much a big part of the symbology of the whole thing and why those three colors are so prominent uh, throughout that holiday season, um, which kind of brings me to another concept that you brought up the other day, which was, and I don't know how you got onto it, but that was the kind of the the point of doing this this kind of heathen uh, Christmas background episode um, was to point out, particularly with Santa Claus, that the idea of a Santa Claus or a Santa Claus type figure transcends okay. cultures, mm-hmm. and it's not always uh, it's not always masculine. Sometimes it's fem- feminine, just like it was mm-hmm. with Bafana in particular. Um, but you said something yesterday about you go ahead. Okay, so one theory um, that I've seen come across in some of my research is that Santa Claus and the idea thereof, because especially in recent history with the commercialization thereof, um, 
that we've sort of created a quote-unquote demigod thereof by creating a tulpa or um, ergagor, which that is something that a a stream of conscious or um, a group consciousness creates and manifests into something magical, physical, etc. Well, and, and I, that's not a recent phenomenon, I don't think, because well, don't a, again, it. all of these all of these cultures have a version of that character. Okay, uh, right? So. For example, if you go back to Saturnalia and you go back to the king of misrule for each house, that basically becomes your Santa Claus right. at that time, right? right. And, and of course, it makes sense that culturally in all these cultures, all the way up in the modern days, and of course, it gains strength over the years because all these cultures merge together through the Roman Empire, particularly in uh, Germany and the British Isles, etc. And all these things get sort of intermingled and become part of pop culture eventually after Coca-Cola starts using Santa Claus. Well, of course, Santa Claus is a tulpa. If you're gonna if you're gonna play Santa Claus, for example, or be a worker for Santa Claus, as it were, uh, and you mean it and it's heartfelt, then of course you're taking in some of that power and you're becoming that character. A really good Santa Claus will become that character, which right. is exactly what a tulpa, uh, not exactly what a tulpa is. A tulpa is something that you create, a projection that becomes real, but something very, very similar. Maybe sort of in the in the, the same way that I think that the Count of Saint Germain wasn't one person but was likely multiple people taking on that identity throughout time. It's just that this one isn't hidden and or veiled as completely by history. Right. Uh, so, maybe even if like, some people so would know, like, like it to be. Like you're, you're taking on the spirit mm -hmm. of that idea. Right, right. And, and I know from the past when you've played Father Christmas that... It, it does, and even magically and spiritually, it does take a lot out of you to do it mm -hmm. because of the magic that you are connecting with. Right. And there was also a lot of, uh, obviously, these celebrations not only tied to the winter solstice, but also tied to the end of the year in general. Uh, there was a lot of symbology in all the segments and in all the research that I did with clearing out the old and bringing in the new. So... Uh, two things that come to mind, and I, I tried to imply it in the in the Yule portion of this with Odin. So Odin is also a wind god, and one of the old beliefs of paganism throughout the world, uh, especially those that would be considered uh, heathens uh, or followers of Heather or living in the heath, uh, was that wind picked up spirits and cleared them out of an area. Uh, it's the same reason that you, when you're smudging, you're chasing a spirit out right, of the area, right. which is really cool. But then you look at Bafana and her being a good housekeeper and yeah. having a broom. It's all about sweeping well, yeah, those spirits sweep, sweep out. Sweep away the spirits and the bad energy. And, yeah. and that goes back to that idea of purity, right? Mm -hmm. Dropping the old, clearing out the old so that you can bring in the new and the old can no longer haunt you, right? All the way down to the wild hunt with Odin. What I think Odin is doing is he's picking, even though it's a scary time and people might die, he's picking up the old spirits of the land where they're at their they're at their peak of their power, right? During during the cold months, they're the Holly King, right? Right. He's picking those spirits up and he's taking them out. Yep. Right. They'll come back the next year, but it will take them the whole year cycle to get back right. to their power. Well, and let's look at the season that we're in, where we've we've in the Celtic calendar, we start with Samhain, which is the quote-unquote pagan New Year, and we move through Yule, and then 
and we look at the Gregorian calendar and we go into the new year. Right. That's why we good tidings to you and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, clearing out the old and starting fresh. And that's that's a Celtic calendar from a modern right. pagan perspective. We know very, very, very little about pre-Germanic, pre-Norse, Celtic, British Isle right. belief. Very, right. very little. Right. Because very little was written about it. We really don't even know what the mistletoe symbolized to the Druids, to the right. Druidic class. We can we can sort of guess because we have at least some ideal that some of the later accounts of Druids, the Druids probably uh, were educated uh, with a Roman background and would have known about Saturnalia. And I suspect that even during Saturnalia, there were deeper things happening within deeper Roman society, which may have still included to some degree some amount of human sacrifice and that that, li- that lineage may have passed down into the Druids. But we still don't have a great concept of what was going on prior to the Romans coming in. Right. So we don't we don't really know a whole lot about their calendar or how right. those things were celebrated. But you can look at human history and look at all these different segments and all these different cultures, and you can infer that we are all seeing the same things and all experiencing the same things within the Northern Hemisphere and the cycle of the seasons and how important that was to life and that there was clearly, again, a dying a time dying of the time year. And a renewing time. Right. Exactly. And so. it's always like the last four months of the the last three months into the fourth month, because when you cross over into January, that's when things start coming alive and the sun comes back. Right. Exactly. All right. And, and so, and the snow with the purifying, and of course, you notice how when it snows, everything is insulated and quiet. Yes. So, sorry, I keep moving away from the microphone because I'm... It's okay, talking. it's just going to make it a pain in the ass to edit. So. <laughs> all right, you got anything else? I, I think that's all I have. All right, guys, well, I hope you guys have a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, guys. And we're going to uh, release a short stuff episode with Penny and maybe another segment with Kim and I uh, this following week. Um, and then we will take a little Christmas break and be back for the New Year's. Merry Christmas. <laughs>